0: Well, this morning we are going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. You'll find that on uh, page 1 in the pew Bible in front of you. And so if you want to use that, um, we certainly encourage you to do so. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we love for you to take that Bible there in the pew rack as our gift to you this morning. Genesis chapter 1. In verse 26. Hear now the word of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And Father, we thank you now that we can set our minds and our hearts upon your word. And we ask that you would come and you would teach us, that you would show us through this passage and others that will consider this morning the, the sacredness of human life, that you are the creator of life, and specifically the creator of human life, and you have endowed all human life, Father, with value and dignity and worth, and it is a worth our, our efforts to uphold that sacredness and to affirm it and to fight for it. And so help us, Father, to have our hearts and minds molded to your heart and mind, that we would uh, be in accord with what you believe and think. And, Father, that you would teach us even now. We want to look at Jesus this morning as well, Father, just not the sacredness of human life, but the the sacredness of our Savior who has come and became a human to die for us, that we might have eternal life with you, that we might be reconciled to a holy God. And so we pray that our joy would be found in Christ and that he would be exalted on high. And so do this work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Private First Class Medic Desmond Doss struggled through the pain to clear his mind and reconcile himself to his surroundings. He found himself on a hospital ship just off the coast of Okinawa, where every inch of his lean frame hurt as he was covered with bandages and had a compound fracture in one arm. As the fog cleared his mind, he thought of his Bible— the one his wife had presented to him on their wedding day. The Bible had sustained him through the months of training. It had been his constant source of comfort through months of combat on the island of Guam. He reached slowly to his shirt pocket where he had always carried it, but the Bible was gone, lost somewhere on the top of the Maida escarpment beside the blood that had leaked from his body. Please, he begged someone nearby, get word back to my men I have lost my Bible. It had almost been a month since Desmond Doss had lost his Bible. You see, on April 29, 1945, Company B launched its first assault on a Japanese fortress. Three days after the initial assault, Doss braved a hail of enemy fo- rifle and mortar fire to rush 200 yards forward of the line to rescue a wounded soldier. Two days later, four soldiers who were assaulting an enemy gun emplacement fell. Doss ignored the rain of enemy grenades around him to rush to their aid, making four separate trips to rescue the wounded. And yet his real heroics occurred on May 5th, when the tide of the battle turned against the Americans, enemy artillery, mortars, and machine gun fire fell, and Japanese soldiers swarmed out of their foxholes and caves in every direction. Almost immediately, 75 men fell wounded, and the remaining men were forced to retreat down the mountain, surrendering surrendering the territory that they had taken the previous week. The only soldiers remaining on top of the cliff were the wounded, the Japanese, and Desmond Doss. Heedless of the shells that burst around him and the bullets directed his way, Desmond tended to his injured comrades, at the base of the cliff those few soldiers who had managed to escape the onslaught can only sit helplessly by and hear the sounds of battle above as the wounded struggled to survive on top of the cliff and then amazingly a wounded soldier appeared over the face of the cliff dangling from a rope he slowly descended to safety first one and then another and another and another Heedless of the advancing Japanese, Desmond Doss went about the work of sending the wounded to safety. Reports of that day tell of Japanese troops advancing with rifles and bayonets to within a few feet of the medic who was slowly lowering his men to the safety. For five hours, Doss lowered soldier after soldier down the face of the cliff, using little more than a tree stump to wind the rope around. Throughout the five hours, Doss had only one thought. He prayed, Lord, help me get one more, just one more. Two weeks later, on May 21st, the Americans launched another attack and then were forced to retreat, leaving Medic Doss behind in the open as he treated the wounded. He and three other soldiers crawled into a hole to wait out the darkness that night when suddenly a great grenade landed among them. As three men scrambled out of the hole, Doss immediately covered the grenade with his boot then felt it detonate beneath him and hurl his body into the darkness of night. When he fell back to the earth, he was bleeding profusely from numerous wounds, but rather than call for another medic to leave the shelter and risk his own life, Desmond Doss bandaged his own wounds and waited the five long hours until daylight broke. As the medics arrived with the dawn and began to carry out the wounded private, out of danger, they passed another critically wounded soldier. Dawson instructed them to let down his litter and then rolled off it and told them to take the other man. While he awaited their return, he was joined by yet another wounded soldier, and together the two men set out for safety, leaning upon each other. Once again, rifle fire split the air, and Payne stabbed Desmond's arm, which was curled around the soldiers of his new comrade. The sniper's bullet went into his wrist, exited through his elbow, and then lodged itself in his upper arm. Had the bullet not hit Doss, it most likely would have struck his wounded compatriot in the neck. Desmond borrowed his friend's rifle and used it to fashion a stock, a splint for his useless arm, and then the, as the two continued to crawl to safety. How many men did Desmond Doss save? Only God knows. The Army determined he had saved single handedly 100 lives. Couldn't be, Desmond replied. It couldn't have been more than 50. In deference to Desmond's humble estimate when his citation for his Congressional Medal of Honor was written, they split the difference, crediting the intrepid soldier with saving 75 fellow soldiers. My question for you this morning is, why do people risk their lives to save others? And why is it that we as a society, amongst many societies... Bestow our highest honors upon those who do so. The only answer that I could come up with is that human life is sacred. It is sacred above all things. It seems to me that the greatest moments in the history of humanity is when the sanctity of human life is affirmed. Even our own nation, in declaring our independence, began by declaring the value of the common person as we declared all men are created equal. We know and stand in awe of rescue teams, perhaps flying into Hurricane Katrina as they did some time ago in a helicopter and 100-mile-an-hour winds to save people lost at sea. They, they went out and risked their own life to save those in the sea. They didn't try to save the boat or the cargo, but the individual's. Others will enter burning buildings or go overseas far away to help people they don't know who happen to be victims of tsunamis or earthquakes and emergency rooms. Doctors labor at great expense to keep a single person alive In neonatal units around our country. Amazing and incredible things are done to keep a single baby alive. You see, the magnitude of the effort and the willingness of the sacrifice is a testimony to the sanctity of human life. In fact, it seems to be the opposite is true as well, that the blackest moments, the the darkest, most evil times in our history is when the sanctity of human life is assaulted. Consider senseless gang violence in Chicago or terrorism in Paris. Perhaps you have taken the trip to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. where you will be assaulted by senseless evil. You'll find a pile of baby shoes, for instance, which are no longer needed because of the barbarism of those days. Even as a pastor, I have had the opportunity or been called upon to officiate a funeral for a baby who lived three hours, a child who lived six years, a single mother who died in a senseless car accident, leaving behind a seven-year-old child with her grandparents, all this is upsetting precisely because there's nothing in creation that is more sacred than human life. If there is anything that it seems should be, at least obvious to everyone, it is that human life is sacred. Is that not something that we all should be able to agree on? You would think it would be impossible for us to ignore, impossible for us to miss this. And I'm afraid we do. We did 1.2 million times last year in America When the life of the preborn were taken by those whom God would have protect them and nurture them. This Thursday is the 42nd anniversary of our Supreme Court's decision of Roe v. Wade, in which our Supreme Court declared that a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion. And therefore, on the third Sunday of every January, thousands of churches recognize the sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We want to dedicate a, a service, a Sunday, to, to this issue of abortion. And we do so, I think, because not only because of the evil of abortion, but because abortion is out of sight. And therefore, it is easy to forget. It takes place uh, away from uh, our attention, it takes place in the shadows. But it is not rare. Even as Kim mentioned, 57 million Americans have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. That's 4,000 every day or one every 22 seconds for 42 years. Nationwide, 22% of pregnancies are ended in abortion. That's over one out of five. 3,000 a day in the United States, which means that more babies are aborted every day for 42 years than those killed in the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Of course, it's not just an American issue, is it? There's 3,000 babies aborted in America every day. There are an additional 127,000 babies aborted worldwide every day. It is a worldwide issue. This came to the forefront earlier last year in an article published by the UK Telegraph, a daily magazine in the United Kingdom. It was published on March twenty-fourth, 2014. The title of the article... Aborted babies incinerated to eat to heat UK hospitals. I read, I quote from the article, it says, The bodies of at least 15,000 aborted babies were incinerated as clinical waste, with some even used to heat hospitals, an investigation has found. Ten NHH trusts have admitted to burning fetal remains alongside other rubbish, while two others used bodies in the waste-to-energy plants, which generated powerful heat. One of the country's leading hospitals, Adam Brooks in Cambridge, incinerated 797 babies at their waste-to-energy plant. Another waste-to-energy facility at Ipwich Hospital incinerated 1,101 fetal remains between 2011 and 2013, generating energy for the hospital site. When this become, became aware, the UK Health Minister, Dr. Dan Poulter, told the BBC what was obvious, I think, to all that the practice is totally unacceptable. And we would agree with that. But my question for you this morning is why? Why is it unacceptable? You know, there's something in our hearts that just revolts against this, but why? It is because God has endowed human life with sanctity, with value, with dignity and worth. And I want to consider that with you this morning from Genesis chapter 1, the sanctity of human life and, a, and apply these truths to the issue that plagues our world, the, the issue of abortion. But before we consider this text, I want you to understand that I, I preached to you this morning with grace in my heart because our God is a gracious and merciful God. I'm aware that 10% of abortions in America are committed by those who identify themselves as born-again Christians. And alongside those women are dads who have encouraged abortions and parents who have supported abortions and friends who have counseled abortions. And so it is is probably without a doubt that there are some here within this room who have been impacted by this. And I want you to understand, I want you to lodge deep within your heart the truth that we find central to our faith. That God forgives completely. He forgives entirely. And that He is the great healer. That is the God we worship. He was said through the psalmist in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In Isaiah 43, our Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. So I tell you, based upon the authority of God's word, If you have been impacted by abortion, our God says to you, Christian, today, my son, my daughter, I remember your sin no more. Christ has come to die to pay for all of our sin, including those sins of abortion. This should be, therefore, the filter of everything you hear today. Everything I say should be heard through the lens and the filter of grace and mercy. The gospel is the best news in the world for those who condemn themselves for being complicit with an abortion. I not only preach to you this morning with grace, but I preach to you as well with hope. I have hope in my heart. I believe Christians are called to be people of hope. And I believe an attitude in America is changing. The attitude about abortion is changing, especially among the young. The New York Magazine published uh, a whole uh, magazine on the issue of abortion in late of 2013, in which they said the current generation of younger voters is the most pro-life to come along since the generation born during the Great Depression. The magazine went on and said, abortion counselors will tell you that the stigma attached to the procedure is worse than it's been in years. We also know that in the past three or four years, the majority of Americans have identified themselves as pro-life. The first time ever there has been a majority in favor of life. I also tell you in the last three years, more pro-life legislation has been passed in our state houses than the last 10 to 15 years combined. I think and hope and pray that the tide is changing. You see, America has an unsettled conscience about abortion. The reason It's unsettled as we all know within our hearts that human life is sacred. It's sacred. And so I have hope. I also have hope because there is no such thing as permanent evil. I believe abortion is from the devil. I believe he is our murderer, as Jesus has told us. I believe he hates us. The Bible says, Jesus said in John 8 and verse 44, the devil is a murderer from the beginning. But Paul will tell us in Romans 16 and verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And so my hope comes from the fact that Christ will right every wrong and there will be a day when the devil is judged and evil is defeated and sin is no more, including abortion. And so I preach to you with hope this morning. But I also preach to you with truth. Please understand I am not making a political speech this morning. I am not running for office. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Abortion is not a political issue. It is not a partisan issue. It is not a social issue. It is not a woman's issue. It is not a children's issue. It is a biblical issue. It is a God issue. And my job as a man called by God to preach you his word is to give you God's word, to give you the truth and we'll apply that to our current culture and the situations happening in our land, including abortion. And so what does God say about the sanctity of human life? Well, there are many places we could consider this morning, but perhaps none is better than Genesis 1. And we see here that God first created human life And we find five reasons why human life is sacred. First, human life is sacred because humans are uniquely created by God. We see this in verse 26. I intend to spend the bulk of my time remaining on this point. That human life is sacred because we are uniquely created by God. Note verse 26. God says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Now, we know from Genesis 1 that if it teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is the creator. That that everything owes their existence because God has made everything. That God is the creator of all things. The Bible tells us throughout Scripture, it begins in Genesis, goes all the way through the book of Revelation. where The Bible tells us in chapter 4 and verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory. Glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. We know our Lord Jesus is instrumental in the creation of all things. For John chapter 1 and verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we know God is the creator. We know that God is the creator of all life. In fact, we look in Genesis 1, and what we see here, if anything, is the fact that God has made everything. And we know that there is a pattern to this. In fact, you notice verse 3. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And again in verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse. And verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And verse 14. And God said, let there be light in the expanse. And verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm. And verse 24. And God said, let the earth spring forth, living creatures according to their kind. And so we see this pattern don't we let there be let there be let there be and god is speaking uh, creation into existence and this pattern is all the way continuing every day every act of creation until we get to the creation of human life in which the pattern is now broken we see that god is going to do something very unique here you see that in verse 26 and does not say and god said let there be humans but rather it slows down doesn't it God begins to have a conversation amongst himself. And then God said, let us... Even implying the triune God back here in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And he goes on to explain what man is going to be like and what man is going to do and what's important about man before he even gets to the point of making man. You see, there's this special involvement here. a personal involvement in the creation of human life. You see this especially in Genesis chapter 2 when we have a close-up view of the of creation of human life. You know, verse 7. And then God formed the man of, of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature you see the intimacy in which god is doing this he's forming man with his hands almost like a potter forming the clay and then getting down and breathing into him uh, face to face man and god as he breathes in the breath of life creating a living man and there's this unique beautiful act of creation and all human life has been created by god as our brother steve has mentioned you friend have been created by god You understand that? God has made you. You are no accident. You are no product of time and chance, but you are the creation of the almighty God who has formed you and made you. God has made all human life uniquely and specially. Of course, the question remains when we try to consider abortion, well, when does life become human? What is the life in the womb? When is there a human person? Is it at birth? Is it at conception? Is it somewhere in between? It seems to me that this is the central issue when it comes down to abortion. What is the life in the womb? And I know there are many, many arguments on both sides of the abortion issue, but I think it all comes down to what is the life in the womb? For instance, women often say who are on the other side of this issue that I have a right to privacy. And I certainly would agree that we have a right to privacy. And they would say this is a private decision. This is my decision. It's my body. And if the preborn is just a mass of tissues, just a, a conglomerate of cells, then I would, I would echo that. Absolutely. You have it would be like removing a, a benign tumor. You have every right to do that. And it would be absurd for Congress or judges or pastors or any other people to tell you what you can and cannot do with that mass of cells in your body. You would rightly say, get your hands off my body. But if the, if the life in the womb is a human person, Well, then she should be protected by our laws, just like any other person. And therefore, it's no longer a private decision. It's no longer about your body. It's about someone else. And we all have a right to privacy, and we all should fight for that right to privacy. But our right to privacy ends when we begin to harm someone else. The government will rightly come into our homes if we are harming someone else. It all comes down to, is this life human? Is it a human person? What is in the womb? I tell you, the Bible answered that question thousands of years ago. In fact, we see it throughout Scripture. We we know biblically that the preborn are children. God forms the preborn. In Job thirty-one, the Bible says, "Did not He who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us? Did not one fashion us in the womb?" In the womb. Or Job 10, your hand shaped me and and made me. God is making us and forming us. Or as Steve read for us this morning, Psalm 139, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I love the, the what the psalmist is doing here. He says, you made me in my mother's womb, therefore I praise you. I, I want to worship you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, the way God creates babies compels praise and worship. I don't know if you've had that experience when you got to hold your baby for the first time. It is a worshipful moment, isn't it? This child that's been alive for nine months is now in your arms. A child that did not exist ten months ago and all of a sudden now is here. And you have this instinct, don't you, Christian, to praise God for him or for her. The psalmist understood that, that every single human being is formed by God. Of course, not even just physically, but God is is somehow implanting a soul or creating a soul or putting a soul there in that child. That child, if you will, at least the soul of that child shall live forever. He's something immortal. God forms the preborn. God loves the preborn. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Isn't that amazing that God says to the prophet, I already knew you when you're in the womb. I, I, I chose you for me. And you see, Jeremiah is not, not a biomass. He's a person in the womb. From the moment of conception, a holy, omnipotent God says, I know you, Jeremiah. I love you. Psalm 22, verse 10, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. That's extraordinary. You have related to me from my mother's womb as, a, as my God, as, as a person relates to his God. You have been my God. So God forms the preborn. God loves the preborn. God calls the preborn. Galatians one verse fifteen. It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. Paul said I was set aside from the womb to be an apostle. God names the preborn. Isaiah forty nine. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Isaiah says I was named even from the womb by God. Therefore, the the, the it's a child. It's a person. God anoints the preborn. Luke 1 and verse 15, He filled John. He will fill John with the Holy Spirit, even from His mother's womb. Right, John's going to have the Holy Spirit be anointed by God even in the womb. Moreover, the preborn are called children. Rebecca would refer to her children struggling together within her, the normal word for children. Um, Elizabeth will refer to John in her womb as the baby in my womb leave, just a normal word for baby. In fact, she will say, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In reference to Mary, who Mary is now pregnant with Jesus. And we know biblically she's been pregnant with Jesus for no more than a week. So no more than a week after conception, this is before most women even know they're pregnant, and Elizabeth, under the Holy Spirit, recognizes that, and she says, Mary, you understand, you are a mother. The Lord is here within you. The preborn are, are called children. They even act like children. Elizabeth said, the baby in my womb leap for joy. Masses of tissue do not leap, and they certainly do not have joy. Right? There's a child in her womb. His scripture is clear the womb contains a person, a human being. Now, I don't think you can believe God's word and deny that. In fact, what the Bible has been telling us for a thousand years, science is finally catching up with us. You see, you not only know biblically that the preborn are children, we also know scientifically that the preborn are children. We now have ultrasounds and microscopic cameras that take us into the womb, and we can now get, we get to see only what God once was able to see, God forming the babies. We can see at week eight, uh, excuse me, day 18 after conception that the baby's heart is beating. This is before most women even know they're pregnant. The baby has a heart that's beating, circulating blood. We notice four weeks after conception that the baby has eyes and ears and a respiratory system, six weeks in. we know the baby has brain waves. The skeletal uh, is, the skeleton is complete. the baby has reflexes. We know in eight weeks, the baby begins to show us her personality as she will suck her thumb or grab her foot, and all the bodily systems are present and developing. We know at 10 weeks the baby will squint, to swallow, make a fist, recoil from pain. We know 12 weeks in, all the uh, organs are now working on their own and the baby. Even is now smiling at times. It's at this time that most abortions take place from week 10 through week 14. And at the time when all organs are present, the brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is cleaning, the nerve cells are feeling pain, and the baby is swimming and smiling. Scientifically, we know that the preborn are children. We even know it in our land, strangely enough, legally, that the preborn are children. For instance, if a mother is driving on her way to have an abortion and she gets in a car accident and the baby dies in the car accident, it is up to the state whether to charge the person at fault with vehicular manslaughter. It's not up to the mother. We also know that if someone commits a violent crime and in that a crime kills the preborn, in 37 states, including Virginia, that individual will be charged with a crime of homicide. These are called fetal homicide laws. Homicide, of course, as you know, is the killing of one person by another. It's not the killing of a subhuman or a mass of tissue. It is the killing of a, of a person. And so it is therefore murder, according to our laws, to kill a fetus intentionally, except in the case of abortion. It's just schizophrenic. It makes no sense whatsoever. The, the issue is not what's, what is the child, the, the personality of the child. The, the only difference is the desire of the mother. And so we legally protect the preborn in our land as children. So we know they're children biblically and scientifically and legally, and we, we also know intuitively that they're children. We, we, this is why we have ministries like this, because they're counseling women who bear great emotional scars after going through an abortion. In fact, the, I mentioned New York Magazine, which published its article entitled "Its Issue" entitled "My Abortion" in November of 2013, in which they shared 26 personal testimonies by post-abortive women. It is a um, heart-wrenching magazine to read. It is deeply troubling and uh, sad to read, as many women are struggling to to come to grips with what has happened. For instance, Nicole, who was 19 when she was emotionally coerced by her boyfriend to get an abortion. A month after the abortion, she says that both she and her boyfriend regretted it. I quote her, When I cry about it, I cry alone. He thinks it would make me sad to talk about. But I don't want our baby to think we forgot. It's fascinating to me that she refers to her child even in the midst of mourning over an abortion as our baby. She knows it in her heart. Or take, for instance, Alex, age 24, who says, sometimes you regret and sometimes you feel good. You think the baby will be a year old now. It's the baby that she thinks about, the baby that she refers to. Isaiah would ask, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? And, of course, the answer is no, a woman can't do that. God has designed them not to be able to do that. This is why these emotional scars remain it's unnatural. Abortion is unnatural. It goes against the very nature in which God has made us. This is why post-abortive women are four times more likely to commit suicide. As they know intuitively what we all know legally and scientifically and biblically, that the preborn is a human being and therefore is sacred, uniquely created by God. But human life is not only sacred because it's uniquely created by God. Secondly, human life is sacred because humans are created in God's image. Again, note verse 26, when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so, friends, we are not just specially made by God or uniquely made by God, but we are specifically created in God's image. You and I and all humans are like God. Now there's been some debate of what that means to be like God. It may be that we are spiritual beings like God is. It may mean that we have a mind, ability to think and to reason and to create. It may mean that we have a moral nature. We alone in creation understand goodness and righteousness and holiness. We know what it's like to love and we know what it's like to hate. So we are made in God's image. Maybe it's we can because we're made in God's image, we can appreciate God's majesty and worship him and have a relationship with him. God says all humans are like God. We alone are like. Lizards are not like God and birds are not like God and, and frogs are not like God and, and even monkeys are not like God. We alone are created in his image and therefore human life has value and dignity and worth. Specifically because we're made like God is where we get our worth. It is not in your ability, your beauty, Beauty, your intelligence, your age, your state of life where you get your value and dignity and worth. You get it because God has made you like him. For instance, in James chapter three and verse nine, James says, with our mouth, we bless our Lord and father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. In other words, James says, you see what you're doing here. You say, I'm going to praise God and I'm going to worship God with my mouth. And then with that same mouth, I'm going to curse those who are made like God. I'm going to curse the image of God and praise the the reality of God, he says you can't do both. If you're going to praise God, then you can't curse his image, his likeness. There's value there. Or in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, when Noah gets off his boat and he begins to speak with God about how to live in this new world, and the Bible tells us, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, if you kill someone... You're to be executed. This is the institution of capital punishment here in Genesis 9. But why? Why should we execute murderers? Well, God tells us for God made man in his own image. So we're not to kill humans precisely because they are the image bearers of God. So they're not to be killed like we kill mosquitoes without thinking about it, or, or mice, or, 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 or whatever. We're not to to kill humans because they're made in God's image. They're his image bearers. Number three, human life is sacred because humans are given authority over creation. You see this again in verse 26 when God says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and then over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So day one through six, God is shaping the world and God is filling the world and God is preparing the world for his last act of creation, human beings. And when humans arrive, he says, "Okay, I want you to rule over this world. I made you like me. I will therefore I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you dominion. You are to subdue this world. He reiterates in verse 28 that we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So sea, air, ground, these are the realms in which we are to rule, God says, and have dominion. There's a clear superiority given to human life in God's word. That, In fact, creation seems to be a gift given to us, that God did all this work for creation largely to allow us to have it, that we might rule over it. And so our Lord Jesus, when he walked upon the earth, would say in Matthew 10, you are more value than many sparrows. Or in Matthew chapter 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Number four, human life is sacred because humans are blessed by God to have children. Note verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. You see, there's a connection there, isn't there? Blessing and children go together. Children are a they are blessing, right? despite what our culture tells us children are blessing we see this not only here in genesis 1 but throughout the book of uh, the, throughout the bible that god is constantly linking blessing with children they go together you, and you see what abortion does it ruptures these two realities it ruptures blessing in children and says, no, child's a cause, child is an interruption, child is fearful, child is uncertain, and, and we, we say a child is anything but a blessing, and therefore we need to get rid of the child because we don't understand what God has clearly taught us here and elsewhere, that children are the ways in which God blesses us. We don't look at children in our society as blessings anymore. We just can't wait to get them out of the house, we say, often, even in their presence, so we can live life and enjoy life once they're gone. And we have this perverted understanding that has seeped into our hearts, and we don't even understand it. We don't even know when we're saying it. But the Bible tells us in Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Children are indeed a blessing. They are God's reward. They are God's heritage. And we rightly should praise them and rejoice in them, whether they're born or preborn. Number five, human life is sacred because Jesus became a human to save humans. Of course, this is not taught to us here in Genesis chapter one, but it is taught to us in the vast majority of scripture. Now, Jesus, if not to state the obvious, did not become an eagle or horse or even an angel to save fallen angels, but he chose to become a human. Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Christ has has become, he's left heaven and he has become a human. Of all the things of creation he could have become, he elected to become like you and I and came into this world even obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now the question is, okay, why? Let's answer the obvious question this morning. Why did God leave heaven and become a human forever taking on human nature? One place that answers it unequivocally is 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 when Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. He came to save you. He came to save me. He came to save every human being who bow their knee to King Jesus. He stands in our place, the place of sinful humans, and takes all of our sin upon himself. He takes it all on him, bearing the infinite wrath of God upon himself for what you and I have done, which is why a holy God can say to you today, Christian, I remember your sins no more. It is not because he has swept them under the rug. It is not because he... He says, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. He had exercised the full extent of his wrath upon Jesus Christ, your substitute, who came into this world to die for humans. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is not even an ounce of condemnation. There will never be any condemnation from our God for any one of us in Christ, no matter if you or I have kept, been part of an abortion or not there's no condemnation it's been taken away Christ has borne your sin do you not see the sanctity of human life in the fact that Jesus has come for you and me he came for us of all creation that is cursed and fallen and dysfunctional he said there is one part of creation I will not let go of and it is humanity It is you and I I tell you this morning based upon the authority of God's word that human life is sacred. No matter the sin, the gospel is the best news in the world for those who would condemn themselves. Even those who would condemn themselves for being complicit in abortion. I love Luke chapter 7 when there is a woman weeping at Jesus' feet. And everybody's scandalized because they know what kind of woman she is, and Jesus knows what kind of woman she is too. In fact, he says to those around him as they shake their hand, heads and think their thoughts, Jesus says in Luke seven verse forty-seven, "I tell you, her sins, and the next thing he says is very interesting, which are many." Right? He doesn't say. Well listen, you gotta look beyond the sin and look in her heart, and she's golden inside, and she's just you know, we just gotta get past that. And say, Well, her sins are not that big of a deal. He doesn't say, Well, her sins are not important. He says, I tell you, her sins, which which are many, are forgiven. And then he goes on and says, Those who are forgiven much will, you know what, love much. I think post abortive men and women should love Jesus deeply because he has come to forgive us. Have you been forgiven by him? Do you know Jesus Christ? He is the savior of the world, savior of mankind. He invites you to be saved by him. You need not do anything. There is no work you need to do, no act of penance you need to do, no acts of uh, contrition that you need to do, no works of righteousness. Simply, you need to believe in him, trust him, bow your knee to King Jesus. The Bible tells us that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. He will save you this very moment. Your eternity will be changed. All your sins forgiven by a holy God through his work of his loving son, Jesus Christ. What about the rest of us? What should we do in light of the sanctity of human life? Well, I would suggest to you that Christians should hate abortion. We should hate that babies are killed, that mothers are damaged, that men are corrupted, that doctors are hardened, and that Jesus Christ is assaulted. Also, Christians should never get an abortion. Over 100,000 born-again women in America have abortions every year. I wonder why that's the case. It's about 10%. And it may just be because of the great shame that one may feel for sexual sin in in light of, of what they believe um, it, it may be because they misuse grace and think, well, well, Christ has died for me, therefore he'll forgive me. And I could just go ahead and get this done with, and I know that, that he'll forgive me. And the devil likes to do that. He says, go ahead and sin. God's going to forgive you. He's already paid for it. Don't worry about it. And then once you sin, he then gets on the other side and says, you don't think he's going to forgive you after what you have done. And he condemns you. And, and I don't know. I have no insight this morning, but... If there is anyone here today that is struggling with this issue, perhaps someone here today is contemplating aborting the baby that's living inside of them, I I urge you, based upon the grace and mercy of God, to rethink your inclination that God is full of grace and mercy. His people are to be gracious and merciful and support one another and come alongside one another. There are incredible resources, as Kim has presented to us. This would be the biggest mistake that you perhaps can ever make. And I would certainly love to talk to you. I know there are women in this church who would love to talk to you and pray with you about that. Also, we should not only, we should hate abortion, we should never get an abortion, but we should pray for the end of the scourge of abortion. I hope that this will be on your heart, that it is on your heart, that you pray for this to end. We should persuade others concerning abortion. We shouldn't be silent on this issue. We shouldn't look the other way. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's difficult to hear. I know it's hard to talk about and think about. But if we don't speak up, who's going to speak up? If we don't say something, the children can't say something. Who's going to say something? If it is not for the people of God upon this earth, is there a more Christ-like ministry to speak up for the disregard and the outcast, the, the orphans who have been turned upon? We need to persuade others. We need to care for women in the midst of crisis pregnancies. We need to give first choice our time and our energy and our money. We need to seek to change abortion laws. I, I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't like to talk about politics. In fact, I don't like to talk about politics because most of you don't like my politics. Right. But I'll tell you one thing. I, listen, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I don't Let me just think about whether I should say. All right, here we go. I don't know how you can vote for someone who will legislate that for the right to an abortion and for that not to be against the will of God and put it that way you and I invite you to persuade me I, I I would like to hear your arguments I just don't understand it and so uh, there are it's not the only political issue um, but in my heart I'm not sure there's a more important one and so you could raise my taxes lower my taxes you could build roads or not build roads you could do you could give me health care or take it away um, but I'm going to stand up for the children that can't speak it for themselves, and that's where I land. Lastly, I would suggest to you that we should believe the gospel. Don't you love the gospel, Don't you love our God, who has come to this world to forgive our sins. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Lord, who loves us deeply. And we thank you for ministries like First Choice. We thank you for the sanctity of human life. We are honored to be made in your image, made by you. May we be faithful to you. May you guide us and lead us. And we pray for our friend here this morning that is troubled. Maybe someone here who has dealing with the scars of abortion. Maybe someone here contemplating abortion. Father, will you minister to them through your gospel, through Jesus Christ. Send the spirit of God right now upon their hearts as you apply a truth of grace to them. Surround them by a loving community of people that they can open up to and carry each other's burdens as we are called to do. And we pray for our friend here this morning that does not know you. They, for some reason, will not accept mercy and grace. Will you not work in their hearts even now? That you offer grace, mercy, eternal life for those who would love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.